Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. Today we ask the question, is mankind trapped? Are we trapped in this cycle of repeat violence and self-destruction? Hopefully today's guest will be able to shine some light on this subject. We have New York Times best-selling author Whitley Stryber. He began his career with gothic horror novels like The Wolfen and The Hunger, which was turned into a feature film by the late great filmmaker Tony Scott. He is perhaps best known for his book Communion, which is an autobiographical account of his experiences with strange visitors who he says came to his cabin in the New York countryside. That book was a number one New York Times bestseller in nonfiction and was also turned into a film starring Christopher Walken. He's also written several other thrillers, including Nature's End and The Coming Global Superstorm. That book was turned into the mega hit The Day After Tomorrow. Now, in this episode, we focus on another book of Whitley's, which is The Key, A True Encounter. At 2.30 in the morning on June 6, 1998, Whitley was awakened by someone knocking on his hotel room door. A man came in and everything he said was life-altering. This is the unsettling and ultimately enlightening narrative of what happened that night. The main concern of this stranger was to save each of us from self-imprisonment. Mankind is trapped, and I want to help spring that trap. In a sweeping exchange between Whitley and the stranger, the unknown man presents a lesson in human potential, esoteric psychology, and man's fate. He illuminates why man has been in a cycle of repeat violence and self-destruction, but can possibly be released from it. When I read this book, it shook me to the core, and I knew that I had to have Whitley on the show to share his experiences with you. So let's dive in. I mean, you are a prolific writer. I mean, as we were speaking about earlier, you've written 40 books or so in your career. Probably more than that by now. I am a busy boy. (laughs) And there's so many different topics we could talk about, but in this conversation, I really wanted to focus on one of your books called The Key, The True Encounter, which I found fascinating. And, you know, when I was reading the book, just really profound stuff that was coming out of that book. So can you tell the audience a little bit about what The Key, uh, The True Encounter is? And can you explain what happened in that night in the hotel room? (laughs) Sure. I was in room 2545 of the Delta Chelsea Hotel in uh, Toronto. It was the last night of what would turn out to be the last official author tour of my life. I didn't know that at the time. Uh, And what happened was, excuse me, what happened was I was in the hotel room and I'd had a long day of interviews and pretty tired. So I'd ordered room service and I had room service up there and uh, lay back on the bed. In a few minutes, what seemed like a few minutes, a knock came at the door. And I looked at the, I got up and on the little desk 
across the room. The room service tray was still sitting there, so I thought it was the room service waiter. I looked at my watch, and I realized it was 2 o'clock in the morning, and I thought, I, should I do this? And, but, you know, I, I wanted to get rid of the tray, and so I opened the door, and this man came in. Uh, he was uh, about five, eight, five, nine. you know, not short, but not tall either, sort of average height. Rather slight. Uh, he had on dark gray trousers and a turtleneck, as I recall. And he had white hair, a very kind face, an older face. I'd say he was in his 70s, uh, 60s or 70s. Or maybe older if he's one of those ages sort of people that are mm-hmm. around. See, everyone once in a while. Um, he walked into the room immediately and walked over to the window and turned around, standing therefore in front of the closed window. The curtains were closed and the air conditioning thing. And by that time, I had realized I had a total stranger in my room and has nothing to do whatsoever with room service. So I moved to get him out. I thought to myself, this can't be good. Uh, this guy is here at uh, in the middle of the night. I definitely need to get him out of here right away. So I started to move toward him, and he said, you're chained to the ground. And I said, excuse me? And he said, I am here on behalf of the good. Please give me some time. Now, I, at this point, I'm thinking it's a fan. He seems perfectly okay, but it's still the middle of the night. And so I'm still very uneasy. And I say, who are the good? Thinking that he's going to say it's some cult group or something. I I didn't know quite what he was going to say. He says, those whose lives are directed toward ascension. And I'm still not happy with this. <laughs> I say, you mean like religious types? Then he said the first thing that kind of stopped me. He said, belief impedes release. The ascension I refer to is a process of finding God within and the universe without. I mean, I'm quoting from the book, but this is, these are quotes, these I, I wouldn't say these are exact quotes because it was not until two years later that I actually wrote this down. It was all sitting in my head the whole time, but I was going back and forth. Did it happen? Did it not happen? Uh, Annie, I called Annie the next morning from the hotel and said, because I'm, I'm bad about deciding things didn't really happen that did, especially if there's high strangeness involved. Everybody's like that. I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. At least I hope not. So I called her in the morning and I said that this actually happened and that she needed to, I needed to count on her to tell me to write this all down and to, and to not let myself convince myself, me convince myself that it didn't happen. And, um, uh, so anyway, back to what's happening here. He, uh, after that, I said, 
when he says this thing about uh, ascension and finding God within the universe without, I then say, what does that mean? And he says, mankind is trapped. And I'm thinking, what in the world is this? And he said uh, that uh, there, there are a couple of uh, other things. And uh, he said that the Holocaust was the import, most important event in the past 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. And that sort of stopped me the holocaust we don't like to think about that very much mm -hmm. i don't i mean i don't nobody does i know about it we all know about it there are some people out there especially more lately the uh, 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 who are denying it but it happened right. all right and it of all happened of course it did um and he said then i said uh, the holocaust was the most important event in the past 2000 years he said you were meant to have acquired the ability to leave the planet by now, but you are still trapped here. You may be irretrievably lost. This is a pretty. This is pretty tough um, conversation to have at any time of night, especially, but especially at two o'clock in the morning from a stranger in your hotel room. <laughs> oh, right. But I'm being drawn into it by what he's saying. That's Obviously. what I'm telling you. I mean, I never heard anything like that before in my life. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, at all cost. It's something that happened. The Germans went crazy. They killed all the Jews. It happened. Uh, the, uh, but I didn't think of it in terms of being a historical event with this terrible resonance in our own lives that he was describing. And then he says... And this has caused me a lot of trouble in certain circles because there's lots of anti-Semites around. Mm -hmm. uh, I said, why has the Holocaust prevented us from leaving the planet? I'm getting a little bit confrontational now because not only do I have this guy in my room. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. It's two o'clock in the morning. I'm nervous about this, but he's also really interesting. He's interesting. He's very interesting. So, uh, so I say that. And he then says, it reduced the intelligence of the human species by killing too many of its most intellectually competent members. Right. Well, you know, you could say that about any war, anything. I mean, wars kill good people. World War One stripped us of the whole of the best of European civilization mm -hmm. uh, and World War II kind of did it even worse. And yet we all, we survived. I mean, the civilization survived um, now, but then he gets more specific. See, he says that because of the Holocaust, it's why you're still using jets 75 years after their invention. Now it's a hundred years and we're still using them. So, mm -hmm. uh, then he says the sentence that stopped me, and this meant that the guy is going to stay. I'm not going to throw him out of this room. He says, the understanding of gravity is denied you because of the absence of a child, the child of a murdered Jewish couple. This child would have unlocked the secret of gravity. 
but he was not born. Because his parents went, the whole species must stay. And boy, I mean, you, you can find some really super Andy Whitley Streber stuff, especially lately on Holocaust denier websites, because they, they don't like to think about that. They don't mm -hmm. like, they don't want that to be true. Sure. But th this guy said so many other things that have turned out to be true. I think it is true. Go ahead. So you were you were writing about things because because uh, you were writing in the book that this this stranger was saying things that was kind of beyond the technology at the time. So when you were writing the book, it you there were these technologies actually became true, like uh, the gases um, and a couple. Of the, I forgot something in regards to gases and artificial intelligence or something along those lines. Oh yeah, uh, there he was. He was. He was very into artificial intelligence uh, mm -hmm. and uh, talked about it a lot. And, you know, every single scientific claim that he made is coming true. Uh, I got the idea for the Superstorm book mm -hmm. from two places. The first, I met a guy who told me about a huge storm that had devastated Hawaii probably 10,000, 20,000 years ago. And that you, it was so devastating that you could see places in certain cliffs where they had been gouged out, open, gouged out by gigantic winds. So it was sort of in the back of my mind. And he proceeds to explain you know, he might have known it was in the back of my mind. He was he was something very special. Mm -hmm. He proceeds to explain later on in the conversation the mechanism behind climate change. And, you know, I listened to all of this. And when I went home, I didn't write the book down, but I did begin researching this. And I would just go deep into – there was not a lot – of research about this superstorm concept on the surface at all. But if you got deep into papers, into scientific papers about uh, uh, the end of the last ice age, you began to see stuff that agreed basically with what he was saying. Weird, very scary things. And, um, and then I read, I, I found something else which has haunted me ever since. There's a, uh, a glaciologist, I think he might still be with us, named Lonnie Thompson, who studied glaciers in uh, the and Peruvian Andes. And he found at the bottoms of many of these glaciers, which were all about 5,000 years old, plants that had been quick frozen so fast that their... Uh, their uh, uh, Cells hadn't been destroyed, like frozen food is quick frozen. The, the frozen, in other words, in a matter of seconds. And now, all these thousands of years later, they're still at the bottom of glaciers. Well, what does that tell you? It tells you that the climate changed in not an, a day or a month or a year or an hour, but in seconds. It's seconds. It's terrifying. And, uh, yeah, and there are places in 
Alaska and in Russia, where there are some very strangely preserved animals that were that died with food still in their mouths. Something happened, and here's another thing about this. The same time this was happening in our area, a man, who is now known as Utsi the Iceman, and was in the Tyrol, in the Stone Age, and he was traveling through an alpine meadow when he was struck by an arrow and killed. He fell down, and it began to snow. We found his body under that snow 5,000 years later. In other words, he was in an alpine meadow. He was killed. It starts snowing. The snow never melts again. It turns into a glacier. 5,000 years later, it's just beginning to melt. What does it tell us? It tells us that something fundamentally changed on Earth's surface 5,000 years ago very suddenly, and also going back 12,000 years when you see those quick frozen plants, I mean, and, and, and animals, this happens. And this mm. is the genesis. This is why I began to think in terms of some kind of a phenomenal storm. And he had described, he had said that the Gulf Stream would stop flowing, and when it did, there would be a sudden and dramatic change in the climate. Now, right now, right now, the Gulf Stream is stopping flowing. And when it stops flowing, you're going to have overnight this unbelievable change in climate. Now, uh, when I first published Superstorm, which was based on the ideas in the key, and to a ex lesser extent on what I had heard from the man, uh, the, the man I talked to in Hawaii. Um, when I published that, uh, I published it along with Art Bell, and we went out to, on the hustings together with it, and we were just scorned. Uh, Matt Lauer, the disgraced uh, Today Show host, right. just sneered at us on today, the Today Show. He was... He was such a creep, but, you know, he was a big star at the time. So it hurt our book bad. And people scoffed at the idea of the superstorm until a few years ago, another paper comes out. And this is a paper about the superstorm scenario written by something like 15 of the most important climatologists in the world. And it, uh, this paper lays out the fact that it does actually happen. Now, right now, as we are talking, there is a subtropical storm developing off the coast of South America in the Atlantic, one of the only two we've seen in the past 25 years. And there is every evidence that the, that the, Gulf Stream is weakening. Uh, it is highly likely that we're going to see more very powerful hurricanes. Uh, we've already seen a devastating and very strange storm system that froze 
Texas half to death. And most of the country, it was like that. It like literally yeah. took like 40% of the country and it was right. weird, weird. I mean, yes. very, very bizarre. Yeah. So it, all, all of it's happening. It's happening. So let me, all right. So let me ask you, all right. So while you're talking to the stranger, th- there's a couple questions I wanted to ask you because there's so many different topics that he covers in the book and that you cover in the book. Um, can you, why, why, how can we overcome the crippling fear that controls most of us, uh, in your opinion? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Well, we have to do what we've done in the past and live past it in order to survive. Uh, the a- ancient Romans had experiences like that mm-hmm. and uh they th- their empire collapsed uh, their whole world collapsed not just their empire but everything they understood about the world changed and we're going to experience a lot of change it's just going to happen that way life changes nothing stays the same uh but here's the issue in my mind uh the uh question is, uh, is it going to completely disrupt our world and cause a massive decline in population, maybe a total decline? Uh, Or is it going to be something that we can, where we can kind of hang on to things and, 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 and keep our world together? I don't know the answer to that question, but right now I have my doubts. Because, you know, we just went through four years of pretending it wasn't it didn't exist and it wasn't true. And then prior to that, the uh, uh, Obama administration was not very aggressive about it at all. It wasn't very important, <laughs> important mm-hmm. to them. And back all the way to the Reagan years, it was always denied by most administrations or the ones that didn't deny it more or less ignored it. Yeah, I remember I and, remember that, that Reagan took off the solar panels that – Carter put up on the White House. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I have a, I have a, uh, the sense that it's, it's at this point, it's really very sinful to do that. And because of another thing, the master of the key said, I grew up Catholic. And, um, of course, therefore, I'm terribly interested in sin. <laughs> <laughs> and you feel guilt and and you feel guilty about it because I was oh, also right. raised Catholic. <laughs> yeah, I, the, Catholic <laughs> the Catholic guilt trip is, oh, is, is, is it, well I, I, it's not all bad. I'll tell you no, why. No, of course. Of course. Uh, what what's was good about the Catholic guilt trip when I was a kid is I have never to this day tasted food as good as the hot dogs that I used to eat on the sly on Friday's fish day. And in our, our archbishop was very strict. And as far as he was concerned, if you violated and ate meat on Friday, you had committed a mortal sin. So I would right. sneak off to this hot dog stand on Fridays. And I tell you this right now, biting into a, one of those hot dogs was just <laughs> wonderful fun. And knowing that now the maw of hell has opened up below me. Should I die, I will I've- go 
down and down. <laughs> I've always found that an issue. Like, so you can murder someone or eat a hot dog on Friday. Yeah, and it's the, the same. It's the, it's, so according to <laughs> you, it. sir, you, according to you, Art Bishop, that that's the same. Something well, now, fundamentally there, there's a problem there. true in all archdiocese and dioceses. Of Some course. of them were not nearly as strict, but our, our Archbishop Lucy was a great <laughs> friend of my grandfather. <laughs> and um, he used to come over to the house for dinner, and I played many practical jokes on him. Um, but in any case, uh, th- that's neither here nor there. He was um, that. That was my my. That was that was the Catholic guilt trip, as far as I was concerned. So, why, in in your opinion, do you think that humanity is so self destructive? Because we are constantly destroying ourselves as a whole, as a species, but yet also as individuals. So, uh, you know, so many times we are just doing things that we know is going to hurt us. Like, you know, you smoke, you drink, you eat the wrong things, you don't do the thing, you do things that you know, you know consciously it's going to hurt you, but yet you continue to do it. Why are we so self-destructive? Why are we programmed that way? Well, uh, one of the things that, interesting things that happened when I was writing the book A New World last year, in 2019, rather. Uh, I've begun being able to write my books with with a lot of direct communication with other levels of reality. I mean, call them the dead or aliens or whatever they are. I'm not really sure. But they're there, all right, and they're real. And they do, They, I am able to work with them. And uh, uh, one of the things that was pointed out to me was that all of this is actually not our fault. But denying it is wrong. And, and like, as I was getting ready to say about the master of the key, his definition of sin is denial of the right to thrive. And that, to me, is the best definition I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. Because if you, you, ta- you, you pretend that global warming isn't happening, you're denying uncounted millions of people the right to thrive in the future. Well, billions, you are, billions, yeah. you are weighing yourself down with a very, very evil thing when you do that, or when you're passive, or when you vote for somebody who 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 believes that. Any of that, it's 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 all denial of the right to thrive. But um, it, so in in a new world. I was very curious about, you know, who is to blame for what's happening? And the visitor's response was, it's your design, the way you were designed. And you you came out, I mean, either somebody designed us defectively, if we were tampered with in the past, which I think is a very definite possibility, Mm -hmm. or nature, something... (laughs) Something went wrong in nature, and the reason is I mean, this. We have no seasonal, sexual seasonality. We're always ready at all times. We're not like other animals, which are only ready, you know, a few, few months of the year. Mm-hmm. We have, we're naked. We have big, prominent genitals and sex, sexual organs, breasts and, and 
male genitalia and so forth, very prominent. And we have excellent minds and big memories, very vivid memories. You combine all of that together and you're going to get uh, a sex maniac species, which is what we are compared to the others. We're always at it here. And human beings are the most sexy creatures on the planet. And that's why it's overpopulated. It's a design flaw. Do you see that? When they said it was not, it's just the way you were designed. And if it was somebody who did this to us, then they want us to experience the upheaval that's coming. But, or they made a mistake. And so, if it's nature, then mm-hmm. nature made a mistake. And, and I mean, the platypus is a perfect example of a mistake, but uh, <laughs> joking. Oh, yeah, the platypus <laughs> is, but we're not platypuses. We're here. Right. And, you know, exactly. We're concerned. We've got all kinds of beautiful children. Oh, my a God. A guy yeah. like me's got grandkids I adore. And, uh, you know, uh, you got all this human beauty in the world, wonderful minds everywhere. Mm-hmm. A beautiful homes, beautiful art, music. No, no, it's the stuff that we, the, the stuff that we can create, uh, that 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 mankind can create is remarkable. I mean, it's absolutely remarkable the beauty that we can create. One of the things that um, the uh, the master of the key, as you call him, um, said, which I found was such a profound. He said a bunch of things that were profound, but the one thing that I found so profound was that we will drown in our own garbage, in our own materialism. And I found that such an amazing metaphor. Not even, it's not even a metaphor. It's the reality. We are literally drowning in our garbage. I mean, the oceans are being polluted at at rates that we can't even comprehend. All this materialism and creation of product, this is, there is no other era or time period in human history We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Where there was this kind of uh, commercialism or or materialism where it's just consume, consume, consume. Our entire economy, our entire world is wrapped around consumerism. If we don't consume, the world stops. Like when we shut down the world for the pandemic last year for a month, which was – I don't know how it's like four to six weeks where literally the world almost shut down completely other than like food and basic stuff. You saw like everything came to a grinding halt. And what are the, what are the powers that be want people to do once things that go by, go by, go by. Cause that's the only thing that keeps the engine keep going. Keep the engine, keep the engine running. Yeah. But look at it this way. If the engine doesn't run, you got no food. You got you're you're we're all broke. Uh, we have to. The strangest thing about us in money in many ways is that we can't we can't live without passing these mysterious little pieces of paper to each other and 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 that's the way we give each other goods. There's something very strange about that. Mm-hmm. Um, very strange. Which is and, essentially worthless paper. I mean, it's it's is it's, well, it's Exactly. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's like this should. post-it. This post-it has the only difference between this post-it and a, and a hundred-dollar bill in my pocket is that one has been given the power 
and everyone agrees upon that that is worth something. This is it's, everyone agrees it's worthless. currency. We all agree it has value. But, you know, people say, oh, well, we should go back to the gold standard. That would be an even greater catastrophe because there's not enough gold around to support the currencies. Oh, to, it would be 30, I think it was like 30 or 40,000 an ounce gold. If not, starts to get into the $100,000 an ounce. Oh, it would um, be much more than that worldwide. Eventually. I mean, if you think of just the United States, but if the whole world ends up going, going back to gold, as it would have to if the United States did, you'd see gold at a million dollars an ounce very quickly. Right. And you know, for whoever has an ounce of gold, that'd probably be a good thing. But, uh, yeah. but you're right. But uh, there would be, it would just be, a, it's just a strange thing. But the whole People commercialism. People chief. Oh my God, they would, oh my God, <laughs> the, it would be, it would, it would, it, I can't even comprehend that. No, it would but be the, a disaster. Oh my God, it would, it really would be. But the materialism of, of needing things, needing physical objects, going after things that, I, you know, I was looking at the. I was looking at the other day. We had a we had a death in our family. Um, she was ninety four. You know, she lived a long life, and you just at the end of it all, no matter what they have, it can't. We can't. You can't do anything with it. It's it's essentially almost useless. The material stuff around you, unless it actually provides a service to you, like your home, like your car, like the clothes you're wearing. These are things that you need to survive. But after a certain point. Unless it has some sort of issue, unless it has something that really adds a tremendous amount of value to your life, it's it's just extra stuff that essentially essentially ends up owning you as you move. When you move, you yeah. carry all the stuff with you. We have to we have an entire industry of storage <laughs> to store right. our stuff that we don't even use. It's it's madness. It really is madness. Well, it it is in a way, and um, we were. You know, it started It started back in, again, in Roman times, because prior to that, people did not have a lot of stuff. But then uh, the Romans had the honors course, which, where you, you had to get, you had to, a Roman aristocrat had to um, gain um, certain honors in his life and her life, and mostly his. It was a male-oriented society. And wealth was important. And these people hoarded absolutely enormous amounts of wealth. You know, we talk about there being too many billionaires in our world. And that's probably true. But in the Roman world, it was like more than 99% of the wealth was owned by under. 0.02% of the people. So it was just so unbelievably top-heavy. But these people began to amass enormous amounts of wealth. And that continued, that process continued, because leaders began to need feel a need to express their power by the size of their palaces and fortresses and so forth. Yeah. And that became a tradition in the Western world, not so much in the Eastern world, but in right. the Western world, it, well, it did. And then it, it kind of infected India when the British came, and soon the, the uh, Maharajas were all competing with each other to build the most beautiful possible palace, and the people were left sleeping half naked under bridges. 
And uh, so that, that ha that's, it's the nature, it's part of human nature. And now in this incredibly wealthy society we have in the Western world, everybody to some extent can do a little of it and we love it. We love it. Mm. We're addicted to it. That's We're a great addicted. term. Addicted. Addicted is it's a great word. It's an addiction. Word. Material world is an addiction. I mean, I'm sitting here in a room full of beautiful books and uh, all kinds of paintings that Annie acquired. And I'm, I would not trust myself to acquire paintings. We have one painting in the house that I thought would, 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 I bought. That painting has lost so much value, actually, that you can feed it dollars and they just disappear. <laughs> <laughs> it's a black hole, if you will, of money. It's of, like of a money. black hole painting, exactly. <laughs> she hated it from the very beginning, and, and, um, but she let me, let me keep it up. Uh, all of her paintings, I gave all of her paintings to the kids, my kids, mm -hmm. uh, a couple of years ago. But uh, uh, anyway, I've, I've still got some of it here, and it's beautiful stuff, and I love being around it. And that's just the nature of man. It's the human nature. I mean, just again, if it, if it's stuff that provides value to your life, your everyday life, I get. But there's some stuff like, and it only happens really when you move. When you're like, you know, I've been carrying around this thing for, and I, I'm now old enough to know that I look like I've been carrying stuff around for 20 years. And in the case yeah. of the one day I might need it, that whole mentality of like one day I might need it, and and the one day I might need it never comes. And if it does come, you go, could I just, if I really needed that, could I have just bought it again <laughs> instead of lugging yeah. it around with me, cost of, of housing it and all it's, it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. Um, but I also wanted to, there was another thing that, um, the master of the key said, uh, which was really, again, profound was the connection between the three great teachers, Christ, Buddha, and Mohammed yes. and the different, the different um, uh, energies that each of them have. Can you explain right. that a bit? Yeah, that's one of the most fascinating parts of it. He viewed the, those three religions as all of a piece, that they were each a piece of something larger. That, and, and it was in terms of three different forces, that the, the uh, active force was Islam, because it is very uh, expansive and very missionary, much more so than the other two. The passive force was Buddhism and the reconciling force that balances the two is Christianity, Jesus's teaching. And it's a very interesting way of looking at a much larger picture of religion than we ever look at because we look at it at them from within our religion. We're all believers by nature. Anne used to say the human species is too young to have beliefs. What we need are good questions. And that that's very true. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but, but we have beliefs. And so if you're a Christian, you can't, you, you're, you're not interested in Buddhism. And if you're a Muslim, it's even, uh, wrong in some cases to even study the other religions. And if you're a Buddhist, you you don't think that the Christians and the Muslims have much of any value to say. But it's not true. All three of them have great value. He was right about that.
And if you look at them in the context of each other, if you look at Christianity through Muslim eyes or Buddhist eyes, you see a whole different set of values there. And it works just as well for the other two, looking through the, 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 the eyes of Christianity, you see at Buddhism and Islam, you see a very different set of values there. And, I, and now I don't mean that, you know, the, the, the believer eyes, which reject, or that's a rejection. No, I reject that because it's not, that's Buddha, not Jesus. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Uh, but a different eye, an open eye, suddenly you find real wisdom of a whole new kind. It's a very, very powerful statement in the key. I'm glad you brought it up. Most people don't think twice about it, but it's really powerful. No, it's extremely powerful. And, and he also said in there, there was like that, I forgot what the, the specifics was that uh, that in in Islam, you give yourself to God. In, I forgot what the Christianity is, but within Buddhism, you look inside of you for God. Yes, it, within meditation and the, and that kind of energy. Um, but I forgot what the Christianity was. Another thing that the Christianity kind of another energy, which was three f- full different energies. And when he said that, when I heard that, I was just like, that is so profound because. I mean, I think the era that we're in, and I think it probably started, arguably in the in the twenties and thirties, when you know people like Yogananda came over and started showing, you know, teaching people about uh, yoga and meditation and those kind of elements. Um, that's when the concept of in ter- in the West, at least, of looking inward for God and looking within yourself for the answers began in the West. They had been in the East for probably a few thousand years um, with yeah. the yogis and those kind of things. But I but I think now meditation is a thing that is not – because I, I mean I'm old enough to remember when meditation was like, you're weird. Um, my mother meditated in the 70s and my, my in-laws or her in-laws looked at her like, she is crazy. Um, so – and I come from a Latino background. So it was – completely foreign thing to them where now there are apps and everyone now understands the science of meditation. And if you want to just look at it from the physical standpoint, what it does to your physiology, how it, you know, and there's things that there still can't be explained in regards to meditation and the benefits of meditation and looking inward. Um, But I just found, do you remember the the other, what what Christianity was? And as far as, yeah, but before we go there, I'd like to talk about just a little bit about Hinduism, which he says yes, some yes. wonderful things about. Correct. Uh, he says that, the, and this is oh, really yes. a, another one of these wonderful sentences, the gods of the Hindus are structures of personality purified into their essential meaning. You know, and I, I, I see a sentence like that and I think to myself, how dare you worry about whether or not this guy is really you? You can't say that. What are you putting yourself up on a pedestal? I didn't say I never would have ever thought of a thing like that. <laughs> but it's incredibly brilliant. He says, Hinduism is the path of soul knowledge. For knowledge of the gods is knowledge of the soul. The great systems of self-knowledge were the Egyptian religion and Hinduism. 
No amount of scientific knowledge of the unconscious will provide as much food for the energetic body as true relationship with the Hindu gods. Isn't that incredible? Mm-hmm. I mean, no, it's, it, it's, it's a remarkable, yeah, I remember listening yeah. to that as well. I was like, wow, that is, and, and to a certain extent, you could look at the gods of ancient Greece and all the different personalities there and how you kind of, you know, they're all reflections of humanity, which I always found fascinating about Greek mythology, uh, but also the gods of Hinduism and how that uh, yeah. has been how brought they're, together. How they're actually elements of the personality. Of, of the of, mind, of the of the being, yes, yeah. it's massive. And they're part it, of us, and they're part of every one of us. And suddenly, this religion that seems so very foreign to us in the West comes to vivid life if you start to see what they really are. And uh, it, 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 the other thing that you were asking about, though, he says, seek the kingdom as a Christian. Give yourself to God as a Muslim, right. find your new companion in the dynamic silence of Buddhist meditation. In other words, you seek God through the teachings of Muhammad. You move toward the kingdom, which is the, the, the kingdom of love. Uh, it's the kingdom of the five the, the, uh, in the Gospel of Thomas, there are the five trees in paradise, and the the number five. Jesus's teaching is actually all about sacred numbers, but we don't see it that way anymore at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've literalized it and debased it, uh, sadly. But in any case, the number five was in the Egyptian system and in the Pythagorean system considered the number of love, because it, is, it adds up the number of man, of the male, which is three, and the number of the female, which is two, and that becomes five. And so it's actually the number of love. And when he, when he says, when the, the uh, Master of the Key says, seek the kingdom as a Christian, he's saying, live out of love live in love. That's what he's saying. Uh, I did not know that at this at the time. I knew nothing about the Gospel of Thomas at the time, and I knew nothing whatsoever about the number five and Pythagoras's uh, elucidation of it in the context of his knowledge of Egyptian, Egyptian secrets, so I didn't know any of that. And um, uh, uh, but you know, it's a, it, it, this document, the the book, the key is filled with uh, depth like that that I did not know about when I was even putting it down on paper. One of the one statement that he said that I actually wrote down because it was so so wonderful, a wonderful quote, which was that hate is like coal; it has an end, but love is like heat; it does not. And I just yes. was like, oh, so beautiful. <laughs> Yeah, and it happens to be true. It's absolutely true because hate does dissipate. Hate, well, hate can't dissipate, but love just goes. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, he's, he's, he, he viewed evil as being entropic. That is to say, it, it's, like, it, it's like absolute zero. It comes to an end. 
there's no there's ultimately nothing left there it's gone. it burns itself out it burns itself out it burns itself out and but love burns forever it goes on and on and on through generations and, upon generations upon generations right. upon it just doesn't stop but the, but hate we hate. live in a, in, in a universe that's on a journey into ecstasy and mm-hmm. I don't mean sexual ecstasy only, but that's part of it. Um, no, of course, of of course. Now, do you? I I just this is a a very profound question. What is your definition of the soul? Because the show is called Next Level Soul, so you know we're trying to take the soul to that next level um, with what I'm trying to do in this world. So, what is your definition of it? Well, I would like to talk in terms of a system as I see it. And this doesn't come so much from the key as it does from the pyramid text in the temple of Unas, in the pyramid of Unas in Egypt. Mm. This text is the oldest religious text in the world. But I think it's something else. I think it is not the first religious text so much as it is the last text of soul science of a repeatable science of the soul. Uh, I think we had such a science long ago because, you know, this text is 3,000 years old and if you look at it and you look at the ideas in it, they're highly sophisticated, highly developed ideas. That wasn't the first. That, that, that is the end product of a long evolution of thought and observation and basically what it sees in terms of the human structure is there is a physical body. It is constantly flowing impressions into the spine, which accelerates them in a it, it, the – Egyptians viewed them as a column of – it is a column of light. And it, these impressions of life are accelerated in this column of light. And then fed through an electric body, the second body, into the soul. The soul, the active part of this triad, is the physical body and the personality moving through time. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show. The... Passive part of it is the soul, which is outside of time and which has generated many bodies. And I wouldn't be surprised if souls don't generate more than one body at a time sometimes. Mm-hmm. But this is, this is very passive. And you talk about meditation. Real meditation is about in, engaging the body and the soul in a new way. And that's done through this other body, the second body. When you go out of your body, which I, happens to me every once in a while, um, uh, you, you're not in your – that's not your soul. That's your second body. That's the, the part that's absorbing everything from this life. Uh, the soul is – and, and transmitting it. Uh, to the to the soul, and the soul is absorbing this. And in the Egyptian belief, once the body was dead, and the soul had absorbed all it could of life, 
it 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 was then at a point where it would weigh itself against the 42 negative undertakings of the what were known as the laws of Ma'at. Mm-hmm. And if you had lived a good life, you would ascend. And, you know, I had a personal experience of the degree of detail that is actually hidden inside us. Years ago, I believe it was 1987 or 88 in February, I got a call. I was in the cabin in upstate New York, and it was a weekend, and um, there was a sound outside, like like a bugle blowing, a very haunting sound, and I knew what it was immediately. It was the visitors, and they were calling me. So I was about 6.30 in the morning, just barely light, and I jumped out of the bed, put threw on my slippers and robe, and ran outside. And I could hear this sound, because they, the little ships they have, when they're idling, they make a funny sound, like a clanking noise almost. Mm-hmm. And I could hear that sound in the, out beyond the little woods that was was beside our house, our cabin. And so I thought, oh my God, they're down in the clearing, the place where they'd originally taken me up. And so I went out, out across our deck and onto a little hill, and I could see through the winter naked woods that they were there. There was a, something there, and I could see some figures around. And I hesitated, because I thought, well, if I go down there, and they don't let me come back, what happens to Anne and my boy, our child? What happens to them? And then I heard in my mind this voice say, come on, come on, real rough voice. And I thought, maybe that's not what I want to do here. I, maybe I'm not going to go down there. So I turned back to the house. And the minute I put my hand on the doorknob of the door to go back in the house, there were three cries above the woods that were the remain to this day the strangest sounds I've ever heard. They were so precision that they they were unbelievable to hear. The precision in them was uncanny. But at the same time, with this ultra super machine-like precision of tone, of tonality and separation, there was incredible emotional depth. They were the most moving sounds I've ever heard also. Mm -hmm. I went into the house anyway, and I was sitting on the bedside, and there was something was in the house, in the bedroom with me that I could not see. And the next thing I knew, I was suddenly walking around in this strange space with these tall, thin what looked like wooden columns. And I kind of was gliding along, and I thought, what the heck has happened to me? And then I recognized one of the things in the room. It was my mother's desk from my babyhood, from, from her bedroom when I was a little boy. And I had been taken back to the moment I first walked. And it was as if I was inside my baby body with my adult mind. It was completely seamless. And after we die, this is 
how our lives will look to us in every detail. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't answer your question directly about the soul, but I've answered it enough indirectly about the process that is that life feeds the soul and why it is so important that we feed it good food. Good so that's food. The, so that's the experience of what we what we call living the experience of coming to this to this uh, you know field of existence as as human beings right and experiencing it through different different uh, you know um, adventures if you will you know being yeah. a male being a male in a white male in the United States in 2020 is a lot different than you know, experiencing life as um, a Jew during the Holocaust. Like that's two very different experiences or, you know, as a, a slave yeah, or as – or, or, Yeah, it's, it's substantially different. So – but all of those experiences are what feed the soul. And, and the one thing I found was interesting too about the book, about um, the, the Master of the Key, he also said that there – and this is so controversial, I think, to many people, is that evil and good is – that doesn't really matter. There is no true evil. There's no really true good. It's just – it is what it is. And I know that's yeah. hard to wrap our heads around that. And I've heard that – and by the way, he's not the first to say that. That is something that you know religious masters have said for – you know for many many years exactly. generations exactly so but it is still a difficult concept because when you're like oh if there's evil in the world and like yeah but i don't know I, I, it's just a concept that i don't know if you wanted to kind of dive into a little bit um well he wants us to look at it objectively rather than subjectively mm-hmm. and uh Subjectively, we look at it as uh, uh, something that's wrong, and that that we should have, we should not allow. Objectively, we see it in terms of the inevitabilities of life, and you you will find that nobody except a crazy person. wants to do evil or believes they are doing evil at any time. Mm-hmm. Those SS officers thought they were doing good. They thought they were helping the world. Uh, some of them, even after the war, were even uh, were, were surprised at how angry the world was at them. They thought that they had done everybody a good turn. Well, it's because everybody is the hero of their own story. To be able to sleep at night, you have to yeah. be the hero of your own story. Now, the, the um, he does not. He just he, he 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 has more than one vision of evil. I mean, he says, uh, "Make no mistake, uh, the people can become so heavy that they sink into the earth." Just as the energetic body can enjoy extraordinary pleasure, it can suffer excruciating pain. You have in your body a few million nerves, but in your energetic body, every tiny bit of being can experience the totality of ecstasy or agony. So, you know, you got, 
You ought to be aware of that. <laughs> That's a pretty heavy statement. Yeah. <laughs> That's a pretty heavy statement. Do you, be- do you believe that we're going to destroy ourselves? Is there any hope for us as a species? We will go through a, a significant upheaval on planet Earth. Mm-hmm. It's already going to – it's going to happen. It's starting. Something's starting already. And it's already well underway. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, it is not – it is not going to. Uh, uh, it's not going to go away, and how many of us will come out on the other side, and what condition we will be in, I don't know the answers to those questions. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't think it's going to be like it is now. I think there are going to be many fewer human beings on the planet soon for the simple reason that you said it yourself earlier, the planet is filling up and we are going to go through a dieback of the species. And you can see in the history of the planet, this happens all the time. It's nothing new and it's just part of Earth's life. And we're part of Earth's life, too. Now, there is one thing, though, that's a kind of wild card. It's the human mind. And I think that it's quite likely that this will get out of way out of hand before it gets better, but that we will save ourselves. And we will save ourselves through the use of science, technology, and a new vision of mankind that starts with the soul, not with the body. There was one thing. Oh, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, there was one. There was one thing um, that I remember that, you, as you were speaking, I remember this comment where that when we, there are discoveries, there's things that we take for granted now, and we can perceive now that was essentially black magic a hundred years ago. Oh um, yeah, Lots from of- uh, there's just tons and tons of stuff. I mean, the internet and phones and and television and radio <laughs> and flying. I love the flying quote that was in the book, where it basically says um, that uh, that the book the um, that the Wright brothers when they were flying, they actually flew, and in the New York Times said. That that's that that's fake. That didn't really happen. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, the, the, the one of a, a very famous scientist in that time, a few months before they flew, published a big paper saying showing how heavier than air flight was impossible. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> then they flew, and we laugh about it now. But at the time, it was almost it was just insanity to even think. It about was considered like a miracle, and some people thought of it as demonic. Of course, I mean, they always, always do. You know, anything yeah. new is demonic. We love, we love the demonic. It's so entertaining, <laughs> right? Exactly. Now, uh, before we go, I wanted to talk to you about your new book, uh, "Jesus: The New Vision." Can you talk about a little bit about yeah, what sure. caused Absolutely. you to write the book? What caused me to write the book is I am very deeply engaged in work with my wife, who is she may be physically dead, but she's still here, and that's why I wear both rings. And uh, she is a brilliant and incredibly vivid presence. I work with 
others among the dead, I suppose, and possibly with entities of that aren't even human or never have been. I don't know. Mm-hmm. This work takes place at a certain hour of the day that in, in some yoga traditions is known as Brahma Muhartha time, the time of creation. It is about an hour and a half to two hours before dawn. And I'm up at that time every, every morning doing my meditation, which is which I call the sensing exercise, which I learned in the, in, in, in the Gurdjieff Foundation back in the 70s. And I've been doing it for more than 50 years now. And when I do it at that time, I get, I become engaged with a level of creativity that's very powerful. And I listen to it. And it has directed me to write the three books I've written recently, uh, Afterlife Revolution, about my experience of rediscovering Anne in an entirely new way after she died. Mm-hmm. Uh, a new world, the story of the uh, 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 that is about understanding how to actually communicate with the visitors, and now Jesus a new vision, which is using the knowledge that comes to me from that level where there is essentially perfect knowledge of history. I was able to rewrite the story of Jesus in human terms. Uh, yes, the resurrection happened. And yes, also, he was human. And what it says, the resurrection says, it says about us and about what we are. Not that we can all die and come back as beings of light, but there is more to us. And his teaching, coming back to the five trees in paradise, is that union with the good leads to love. And as you were saying earlier, love is the most powerful form uh, thing in the universe. And he said that we will not understand. I asked her after she died. And uh, one of the first questions I asked her was about gravity, because I know that the, that people in China, United States, Russia, France and England have known that there are ships around here that 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 function without gravity that are gravitic they have control over gravity and she said we will never understand gravity until we understand and can live by the fact that the universe is based on yearning there is a great yearning that causes causes the universe to exist as Annie was passing away as, as she died and her soul left a book flew open on our bookshelf. It's called physics from Fisher information. Annie was very familiar with it and it threw flew open to a page on which there was in yellow mark marks a lot. Uh, there was, uh, uh, a a phrase marked out, the universe began as a single primordial quest for knowledge. And it is getting into touch with this level of consciousness 
it will also bring us to the understanding we need to express mankind into the universe beyond. And if we are to survive the upheaval that is coming, this is how we will do it. It will not be because Elon Musk succeeds in sending a 150 people to Mars. It will be because anybody can go and we can find new worlds for ourselves. But it's not just science that it requires. We have to come to peace in ourselves and with our own souls and with this universe. And all of this is not directly contained in Jesus a new vision, but it is a new vision of how to be a good human being, how to live as he lived and why he lived that way and why we should too. And it's, believe me, don't, you know, read the book. If you're going to try this, read the book rather than the gospels. I retranslated the Beatitudes, which are his basic moral code myself because they, the translations that we have are not adequate. So uh, that's Jesus and your vision. Whitley, thank you so much for your time and uh, for the work that you do and trying to help uh, souls around the world to go to the next level. So I do appreciate yeah. it, my friend. It's fun to wake up. <laughs> Never think it's not. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. I feel that the key is to look inward, to find God, to find that higher power within yourself. And when you're able to do that, all things become easier. Life becomes more fulfilling. Things just become clearer on your path. And if you haven't already, please pick up a copy of The Key, A True Encounter. It will shake you and make you think about things a little bit differently. And I'll leave you with a quote from the master of the key. Hate is like coal. It burns out. Love is like heat. It does not. Now, if you want to go deeper into Whitley's universe, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash zero zero four. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a positive review on whatever platform you are listening on. It really helps the show out a lot. And remember to trust the journey. It is there to teach you. I'll see you next time.